In 1907, New York City domestic worker Mary Mallon was accused of murder in a sort of unusual way. One afternoon, a strange man knocked on Mary's door and told her that she was carrying germs. She was full of invisible microbes that gave people typhoid fever. Even though Mary had never been sick with typhoid herself, she was spreading it to others through the food she cooked, and some of those people were dying. This made Mary more than just a carrier. She was technically a murderer. But did Mary know what she was doing? How culpable was she in this string of infection? This is a question scientists still ask today. Could it be that Mary was simply not aware of the threat she posed to others? Or was she willfully spreading a contagion? Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Female Criminals, a Spotify original from Parcast. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Last week, we met Mary Mallon, an Irish immigrant working as a cook for some of New York City's most elite families. But there's something unusual about Mary Mallon. Her cooking can be deadly. Mary's story has blurred the line between fact and legend, but we're going to tell her story as best we can based on the information available to us. This week, we'll see how Mary handles being labeled a menace to society and her decision to return to her deadly ways. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. 
Various disease epidemics rocked the United States in the 1800s, and New York City in particular was a hotbed for infection. With so many people crowded in unsanitary living conditions, disease often prowled through the city's poor communities. And in 1907, typhoid fever was still a fairly common disease. 38-year-old Mary Mallon was lucky enough to have been healthy her whole life. Even as a child in Ireland, she'd managed to miss the worst of the Great Potato Famine. But now she was in New York City, working as a cook, and even though she frequently migrated between jobs, it seemed like illness followed Mary wherever she worked. And something else had been following Mary Mallon, or should I say, someone. Earlier in the summer, Mary had been working for the wealthy Warren family at their summer home on Long Island. When multiple members of the household came down with typhoid fever, the Warrens hired sanitation expert George Soper to investigate. After all, typhoid fever was thought to be a disease of the poor and working class. The Warrens were neither. After putting the clues together, Soper zeroed in on the Warrens' cook, Mary Mallon. He traced back her work history and realized that almost every time Mary Mallon left another cooking job, it was right after an unexplained outbreak within the household of typhoid fever. Soper believed that Mary didn't actually know she was carrying typhoid, and how would she? Healthy carriers don't suffer the symptoms themselves, fever, rash, headache, and diarrhea. Mary hadn't shown any of these symptoms in her whole life, she knew she had never herself had typhoid fever, and in 1907, no one had ever even heard the term asymptomatic carrier before. So it makes sense then that when Soper showed up at her home to tell her she was killing people with typhoid, she got more than a little defensive. Before we continue with Mary's psychology, I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but we have done a lot of research for the show. In 1937, Anna Freud presented some conclusions about defensive behavior, which she called defense mechanisms. Defense mechanisms can be psychological, physical, or both. Some familiar ones include denial, isolation, and displacement. The last one means redirecting emotions at something other than what is causing them. It's the idea behind the phrase, don't shoot the messenger. In this case, Soper was simply the messenger, but Mary could not handle what he had to say. In fact, when Soper accused her of leaving behind a trail of disease and death, Mary picked up a carving fork and went for him. George Soper felt the blood drain from his face as Mary moved towards him. He backed away quickly and then turned on his heel in a full sprint out the door, Mary still chasing him with the fork. This was definitely not a promising first encounter. George Soper was rattled, frightened, and thoroughly disenchanted with Mary Mallon. He acknowledged that he might not be the man for the job. Because capturing Mary Mallon might not be a man's job. Dr. S. Josephine Baker was all too familiar with sexism. She graduated from medical school at a time when less than 5% of practicing physicians were female. 
and it was Baker who was sent to Mary's home to try to complete the task that Soper had not been able to, get Mary to cooperate and provide samples for testing. On Baker's first attempt, Mary met her, as she did Soper, with unvarnished hostility and a slammed door in the face. But Baker had read Soper's initial report, so she was not surprised when Mary turned violent, and by their second encounter, she was ready to play defense. This time, Baker brought a handful of policemen with her. Unfortunately for her, this had no effect on Mary's willingness to brandish her usual weapon, the carving fork. Perhaps Baker felt some degree of empathy towards Mary Mallon. She understood what it was like to be a woman in New York City in the early 1900s. Women at the time, especially unmarried immigrant women, were often denied agency, happiness, and freedom. Making a living was an urgent and often difficult process. Mary herself, despite her talents in the kitchen, was often unemployed. Meanwhile, Baker had only been able to pursue the study of medicine through a mix of class privilege, inquisitive intelligence, and dogged persistence. But any empathy Baker felt towards Mary's plight could outweigh Baker's duty to her work. Breaking the detente, Baker dived at Mary Mallon. But Mary was faster. Carving fork still in her fist, she ran deeper into the house, disappearing into the darkness. By the time Baker recovered, Mary Mallon was absolutely nowhere to be found. Baker and her police escort began to comb the house. They threw open closet and wardrobe doors, overturned mattresses, and upended tables and chairs. Through the chaos and clatter, Baker questioned the other women in the house, tell them where Mary was hiding. In solidarity with their fellow worker, the servants didn't say a word. They had never even heard of Mary Mallon, some claimed. Baker and the police tore the house apart, but for five fruitless hours, all their search came to nothing. Until finally, one of the policemen found Mary concealed in a closet behind a pile of ash cans. As he tried to pull her out from behind them, she leapt at him, all the while kicking, screaming, and swearing. After a prolonged scuffle, he managed to take hold of her. Mary Mallon was forcibly dragged through room after room, out the front door, along the front walk, and into a waiting ambulance. And even once she was inside the ambulance, Mary did everything she could to fight off the policemen, clawing her hands and swinging her feet at them. It wasn't until Josephine Baker sat herself directly on top of the still wildly belligerent cook that Mary Mallon finally subdued. Or at least physically. Despite her restraints, Mary continued to resist, screaming and crying, demanding to be free. The wail of the ambulance's siren just barely drowned out the screaming as Mary Mallon was carried to Willard Parker Hospital. Beneath the figurative weight of the ordeal and the literal weight of the doctor's assistant on top of her, the menace to society Mary Mallon had finally been captured. In their own opinion, George Soper and S. Josephine Baker were bringing justice to the world. They were helping keep New York safe. But justice was not on the menu for Mary Mallon. 
only persecution. Up next, Mary continues the fight for her life. Hi there, it's Carter from ParCast. If you haven't had a chance to check out the riveting true crime series Solved Murders, there's no better time to tune in. Throughout the month of August, Solved Murders is featuring four celebrations that took a turn for the deadly in a special series we're calling Party Fowls. From a murder in the New York nightclub scene and a house party gone horribly wrong, to a terrifying evening at the Tate residence and a sex party with sinister results, go deeper inside four affairs remembered for all the wrong reasons. And if you like what you hear with Party Fowls and want to uncover more of history's most captivating cases, be sure to follow Solved Murders on Spotify. There you'll find a new episode released every Wednesday. Solved Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. Listen free only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. After a five-hour manhunt, 38-year-old Mary Mallon was captured and transported to Willard Parker Hospital in New York City. While it might seem extreme to arrest someone for being an unknown carrier of a disease, in 1907 it was definitely an available option. In order to stop them from spreading illness, carriers were routinely separated from all they knew. They were plucked from their jobs and homes, taken from their families and friends, disbarred from streets, shops, and society, and relocated to remote isolation hospitals. Their consent was not required. As far as public health officials were concerned, it was a case of one group's needs outweighing the other. Mary's need for social contact, stability, and overall happiness was outweighed by the public's need for safety. Most quarantined individuals were viewed as unworthy of human compassion. They were seen only as the disease they carried. That was certainly how Mary's accusers saw her. Once at the hospital, they got their samples of her blood and feces. When they came back positive for the bacteria that causes typhoid fever, George Soper was vindicated. Mary Mallon was exactly what he accused her of being. She was Typhoid Mary. Before she had time to process what was going on, Mary was led onto a ferry in the East River, its lone passenger besides the captain. The small boat moved steadily through the water towards its destination, a place Mary had never seen before but was aware of because of a recent shipwreck. North Brother Island was reasonably famous after over a thousand passengers drowned off its coast. Needless to say, her associations with the island were not positive. But as she traveled on that ferry, 
She stared determinedly at the small island. She felt neither hope nor defeat. Then, swept into the air by the wind, the river water touched Mary's face, soft as a flower petal. It reminded her of another boat ride, the one from Ireland to America, one that had been full of promise. Now, all those dreams were taken from her. The facility on North Brother Island primarily serviced tuberculosis patients. To avoid exposure from those patients, Mary was to be housed alone in a one-room cottage on the grounds. The room was quite small, about 20 by 20 feet in dimension, with a bathroom and small kitchen attached on the back of the building. The closest building nearby was a chapel, and both structures stood at some distance from the hospital and its other captives. A solitary elm tree was stationed by the front door like a sentinel. Mary had been caught like an animal, and now she was to be caged like one. When she first opened the door to the cottage and walked inside, she did not see the large oak table in the center, the rocking chairs, or the sleeping cot. She could think only of the judge's words and the ruling that she was to be held indefinitely. For a moment, the cottage represented something like eternity. The idea that she might spend the rest of her life in one tiny room flashed into her head. Then, just as quickly, she forced the thought away. She would find freedom from this place, somehow. From the start, Mary did not take well to her isolation. A few days into her confinement, Mary's left eye began to twitch. She asked for a doctor, but none would see her, and the condition persisted. For months after, that left eye was a continual bother, to the point where she covered it with her hand by day and bandaged it by night. But to her mounting frustration, no doctor on the island gave her the time of day. Eventually, though, her eye, quote, got better in spite of the medical staff. The involuntary twitching of Mary's eye was probably a psychosomatic response to what she called her grief at being imprisoned, but she got no real answers about it. The doctors who did see her were only concerned with testing her for typhoid. All they cared about was collecting their samples. Mary felt totally dehumanized, reduced to nothing but the waste she produced. For well over two years, Mary's said to have lived a simple, lonely life in that small, one-room cottage. For company, she was given a small fox terrier, whom she came to love. Her canine companion would prance around the cottage, wagging its tail happily. In Mary's mind, it was oblivious to the fact that it, too, was in captivity. But she amused herself with the dog's antics. It would even yip and jump at the few visitors who stopped by. How much Mary was able to interact with other inhabitants of North Brother Island, including sharing meals with them, is unclear. Some reports indicate that she moved freely about the island, and that she might have even actually been cooking for some of the hospital staff. But by most accounts, Mary Mallon was often entirely alone. In handwritten letters and interviews with reporters, Mary describes a sense of rejection and stigmatization at the hands of the island's employees. Just as she had been neglected by the doctors regarding her eye, even the nurse who brought her her daily meals wasn't interested in interacting. Instead, in Mary's account, 
the nurse would approach her small door, shove Mary's meal hurriedly beneath it, and then quickly run away. It was overall a lonely little life. And Mary wasn't having it at all. In April 1908, Mary's friend and former housemate named A. Brehoff was trying his best to support her efforts for freedom. Over time, Brehoff got one doctor to admit that Mary's captivity was inconveniently expensive. This seemed to imply that there might be some financial advantage to the Board of Health to let her go. But the doctor who gave that opinion was powerless before the board's authority and dubious about his capacity for, or even interest in, convincing them otherwise. However, the next doctor that Brehoff consulted had a brand new bargaining chip in the case of Mary Mallon. Sitting down with Brehoff, he explained a rather recent scientific discovery. It appeared that the human gallbladder had a thing or two to do with typhoid fever. Most of the bacteria associated with the disease could be found there. So if Brehoff could get Mary to consent to having her gallbladder removed entirely, she would stand a much better chance of arguing successfully for her release. The doctor promised the services of the best surgeon in town. Brehoff passed this on to Mary with some degree of hopefulness. Here might be a way out, he suggested. Without a moment's pause, Mary shot it down. Not only did she not trust any doctors, but she still fundamentally believed that she did not carry typhoid fever. So she saw the procedure as useless and dangerous. At the time, surgeries like this one carried a significant risk to the patient. Mary was so distrustful of the doctors on Brother Island that she half expected them to knock her out with ether and take out her gallbladder anyway, even if she said no. As reports of Mary's fate reached newspapers, some sided with the patient, some with public health. A few newspapers sensationalized her story out of proportion, and some skipped over some of the most basic facts to twist the narrative. Some called her by the name her mother had given her, others only as Typhoid Mary. But even the brief recognition of her plight by the public didn't offer Mary comfort, nor did it nudge her towards acceptance of her situation. If anything, her fame hardened her resolve to get out of isolation. She told reporters that in her imprisonment, she'd been treated worse than an actual murderer who would have at least had their day in court. Mary had been given no due process and no justice. She bristled at the fact that George Soper's investigative reporting always left out a family in the Bronx she'd cooked for. None of them had gotten sick, but they didn't matter because they weren't as wealthy as someone like the Warrens. After a little over a year in confinement, Mary Mallon was determined to fight back. She demanded her life back. At first, Mary played it cool, pretending nothing unusual was going on. Over the course of several days, she continued to dutifully provide the island's doctors with samples of her feces and urine. But on these particular days, Mary hung on to what we'll call the leftovers. She hid them from the doctors, and with the help of her friend, Mr. A. Brehoff, she mailed the samples to a man named George Ferguson. Ferguson was a professor at the New York School of Pharmacy, and he owned and operated his own scientific research laboratory. 
Mary hoped that the tests done at Ferguson might run contrary to what the doctors were claiming about her on North Brother Island. More than hoped, she fully expected them to proclaim her innocence. Mary still did not believe for one instant that she had anything to do with typhoid fever. For over a week, she anxiously awaited their response, asking day after day for their letter. She recognized the weight the word of a scientist could carry. A scientist's word in support of her might be her only way out. And then, finally, finally, the Ferguson Laboratory wrote back. They had the results from her samples. As she read the letter, Mary's heart thudded in her chest. Her hands started shaking so much that she nearly dropped the paper several times. But she gripped it tightly as her eyes moved sentence to sentence. The letter said, in no uncertain terms, that the laboratory had found absolutely no trace of typhoid fever whatsoever. Her pounding heart stopped for just one moment. The news brought tears to her eyes. She felt like a child, almost giddy with glee. Mary smiled to herself for the first time in what felt like months. She was right. She'd been right this whole time. She was going to get out of this prison of sickness. She had to. Coming up, Mary continues her fight for freedom and continues to put the public in danger. Now back to the story. In 1908, after a year in forced captivity, Mary Mallon finally had a glimmer of hope. Another doctor, unassociated with the health department, tested her samples, and he found no trace of typhoid fever. Unfortunately for Mary, the samples she had sent on her own to be tested were deemed compromised. She hadn't collected and delivered them in a controlled way, and so the analyses from the Ferguson lab were dismissed out of hand as inconclusive. Freedom was not going to be easy, but Mary Mallon would not be swayed. She would not stop fighting for the freedom she felt was rightly hers. A more passive person might have been resigned to her fate, but not Mary. If science couldn't help her, then it was time to get the law involved. By 1909, Mary was able to secure the services of a New York lawyer, George Francis O'Neill. In June of that year, O'Neill filed a writ of habeas corpus. It was Mary Mallon's right as an American citizen, O'Neill argued, to be brought to court in order for a judge to rule on her detainment. Without this court proceeding, Mary's captivity was unconstitutional. She was finally given her day in court in July 1909, but the judge was, unfortunately, unconvinced. They ruled against Mary Mallon's bid for freedom. So Mary was escorted out of the court, back onto the ferry, and back to her lonely cottage on North Brother Island. But not even a year later, everything started to change. In February 1910, a new health commissioner offered Mary another deal. She could be freed, but there were strings attached. First, Mary would have to sign an affidavit promising that she accepted the conditions of her release. She agreed. 
Second, she would have to be obsessively careful with her hygiene from now on, including consistently washing her hands. She agreed. Thirdly, Mary Mallon could never cook again. This should have given Mary pause. Cooking was Mary's livelihood. Without it, how could she survive? The commissioner offered no further education or training to help her find another job. There was a half-hearted offer of working as a laundress, which wouldn't pay nearly as well. But Mary agreed. She signed the document. And with that, Mary Mallon was free. Then, as she often did, Mary disappeared. For over five years, Mary Mallon vanished from the public eye. She was nobody else's problem, and nobody else's problems were hers. Her companion, Mr. A. Brehoff, had died, so she moved to Corona, Queens. No one mentioned Typhoid Mary until... In 1915, sanitation expert George Soper reportedly received an urgent call from the chief physician of Sloan Maternity Hospital in New York City. The doctor was frantic. Suddenly and out of nowhere, his staff were getting sick. One by one, they were getting struck down, unable to work. In total, 25 doctors, nurses, and other workers had fallen ill. Even worse, two of them had died. Suspicion had fallen on the hospital's cook, a middle-aged woman named Mary Brown. In a mockery of her and a news story from the last five years, some hospital staff had started calling her Typhoid Mary. Soper felt an ominous chill run up his spine. Was it a coincidence? Was Mary Brown just an innocent woman? Or was she the alias of a criminal who'd been given a second chance and then wantonly abandoned the agreement she made? Was Mary Mallon loose in the world, killing anew? Soper needed more information. He knew that he would recognize Mary Mallon's handwriting on sight, so he asked for the hospital doctor to show him a sample. If Soper recognized the handwriting as that of Mary Mallon's, it would mean that Mary had broken her promise and started cooking again, already putting dozens of people in danger. And most importantly, it would mean that the debate about Mary's culpability was settled. Regardless of what anyone had argued before, including Mary herself, Mary Mallon was a criminal. Pairing the handwriting sample with a physical description of Mary Brown, Soper became certain that she and Mary Mallon were one and the same. In March of 1915, Mary was seized from her home and returned to North Brother Island. Health Commissioner S.S. Goldwater stated that Mary would never endanger public health again. She could not claim innocence, Soper declared, as she had willfully and deliberately taken desperate chances with human life. By now, Mary was 45 years old when she was brought for a second time to North Brother Island. There, she took up some of her old pursuits. For example, she could usually be found writing letters. Without her former companion, Mr. A. Brehoff, as a correspondent, she most often wrote to those who she blamed for her isolation, including Josephine Baker. 
These letters were frequently menacing in tone, and some included outright threats of extreme violence. One physician in particular she promised to murder upon her next release. But that release never came. For the next 23 years, Mary remained in isolation on North Brother Island. This time, though, Mary had some trappings of a normal life and some small freedoms. By 1918, she had started domestic work on the island and eventually took on work in a laboratory there. She was good friends with the doctors who ran the lab and seemed to actually enjoy the work. She also had her own side hustles making beaded chokers and, very occasionally, cooking cakes. For fun, Mary was allowed to take shopping trips offshore as long as she remained cooperative, which she generally did. She likely took great pleasure in these outings, often dressing up and returning with gifts for her friends on the island. Mary Mallon had many friends among the staff on the island, but all of them knew to never bring up typhoid fever unless they wanted to see her seriously mad. Some of the doctors called her Typhoid Mary behind her back, but none had the gall or the stupidity to say it to her face. So, for 23 years, Mary worked, socialized, wrote, and kept herself amused on North Brother Island. By others' accounts, she might have experienced some degree of happiness in her decades of isolation. Then, on the morning of December 4, 1932, 63-year-old Mary Mallon did not show up to her laboratory station as usual. All her life, Mary had been a dependable worker, so it was with some concern that the head of the laboratory, a friend of Mary's, went to Mary's cottage to find her. The scientist immediately noticed that the cottage was in disarray, with foul smells percolating in every corner. She murmured slightly with disgust. Her friend was clearly not caring well for the place. Then she discovered what might have been her explanation. Mary Mallon lay slumped over in the middle of her floor. The scientist rushed Mary to Riverside Hospital, where she was given a bed in the children's ward. There, Mary Mallon spent the rest of her life. She died on November 11, 1938, at 69 years old. Throughout her slow decline, she remained in isolation on North Brother Island. A handful of her friends, along with their families, attended her funeral in the Bronx. Her estate paid for her headstone, whose epitaph can be read as a plea for mercy, something she received so little of during her life. Mary Mallon's legacy amounts to more than typhoid fever. It carries a need for mercy and for compassion, and it carries with it a very heavy question. Why Mary Mallon? In a 2019 research paper, philosophy professor Gabriel Andrade discusses an ethical quandary commonly known as the trolley problem and how it applies to the medical community. Simply put, the trolley problem asks how we place value on life. Should a trolley be allowed to run over two dozen people in order to save one person's life, or vice versa? Doctors and other professionals frequently find themselves in situations where knowing exactly what or whom to prioritize is not always clear. 
Mary's story echoes the trolley problem. From some perspectives, she can be seen as the one who was run over to save the many. But Mary was not the only one in her situation, unique as it may seem. During Mary's life, New York City health officials were dealing with thousands of healthy carriers of various deadly diseases. Many men, including some working in the food industry, were recognized to be, just like Mary Mallon, carriers of typhoid fever. But these men were treated quite differently. If they were isolated at all, their sentences were shorter. One of them, a baker, was allowed to continue his trade despite the official's knowledge that his baking was transmitting typhoid to his customers. The difference between Mary and the baker? He had a family for whom he was the sole provider. If he wasn't allowed to work, the ripple effect would be much greater. But the case of an unmarried, childless woman was a different one entirely. Dealing with these questions of public health and individual liberty are difficult and complicated. Society is required to make hard choices. In the case of Mary Mallon, society took the easy way out. Maybe it was easier to scapegoat a woman than a man. Maybe it was easier to see a woman as unreasonable. Maybe it was easier to suspect a female immigrant of antisocial intentions than an American man. Maybe it was easier to villainize a woman who fought back rather than meekly accept her fate. Mary Mallon was a criminal, but only on the most rudimentary level. Yes, on paper, her actions caused the deaths and debilitation of dozens of people, but in 1984, over a half century after her death, a publication called Current Health named Mary, quote, a mass murderer unknowingly. The people who could have helped her did not. They are just as culpable, if not more so. Mary Mallon's legacy should highlight an urgent need for compassion, the same compassion that anyone in her situation deserved. She deserved the ordinary life that was denied her. She deserved to be remembered by more than a cruel nickname. But perhaps if Mary Mellon could have had it her way, we would not remember her by any name at all. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Among other sources, our primary source for our research on Mary Mallon was a book called Typhoid Mary, Captive to the Public's Health, written by Judith Levitt. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Anthony Valsic. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Emily Duggan. With writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. Fact-checking by Anya Bayerly. And research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Vanessa Richardson.
Hi, listeners. It's Carter. Here's a quick reminder to check out the Solved Murders four-part special Party Fowls. Every Wednesday in August, take a closer look at four celebrations that ended in horrific fashion. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Solved Murders. Listen free only on Spotify. Spotify.